Chapter Fifteen of the Bride of Lammermoor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Bride of Lammermoor by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Fifteen. We worldly men, when we see friends and kinsmen past hope sunk in their fortunes, lend no hand to lift them up, but rather set our feet upon their heads to press them to the bottom. As I must yield with you, I practised it, but now I see you in a way to rise, I can and will assist you. New way to pay old debts. The Lord Keeper carried with him to a couch harder than he was accustomed to stretch himself upon, the same ambitious thoughts and political perplexities which drive sleep from the softest down that ever spread a bed of state. He had sailed long enough amid the contending tides and currents of the time to be sensible of their peril, and of the necessity of trimming his vessel to the prevailing wind, if he would have her escape shipwreck in the storm. The nature of his talents, and the timorousness of disposition connected with them, had made him assume the pliability of the versatile old Earl of Northampton, who explained the art by which he kept his ground during all the changes of state, from the reign of Henry the Eighth to that of Elizabeth, by the frank avowal that he was born of the willow, not of the oak. It had accordingly been Sir William Ashton's policy, on all occasions, to watch the changes in the political horizon, and ere yet the conflict was decided, to negotiate some interest for himself with the party most likely to prove victorious. His time-serving disposition was well known, and excited the contempt of the more daring leaders of both factions in the state. But his talents were of a useful and practical kind, and his legal knowledge held in high estimation and they so far counterbalanced other deficiencies that those in power were glad to use and to reward, though without absolutely trusting or greatly respecting him. The Marquis of A. had used his utmost influence to effect a change in the Scottish cabinet, and his schemes had been of late so well laid and so ably supported that there appeared a very great chance of his proving ultimately successful. He did not, however, feel so strong or so confident as to neglect any means of drawing recruits to his standard. The acquisition of the Lord Keeper was deemed of some importance, and a friend, perfectly acquainted with his circumstances and character, became responsible for his political conversion. When this gentleman arrived at Ravenswood Castle upon a visit, the real purpose of which was disguised under general courtesy, he found the prevailing fear which at present beset the Lord Keeper was that of danger to his own person from the master of Ravenswood. The language which the blind Sibyl, old Alice, had used, the sudden appearance of the master armed and within his precincts, immediately after he had been warned against danger from him, the cold and haughty return received in exchange for the acknowledgments with which he loaded him for his timely protection had all made a strong impression on his imagination. So soon as the Marquis's political agent found how the wind sat, he began to insinuate fears and doubts of another kind, scarce less calculated to affect the Lord Keeper. 
he inquired with seeming interest whether the proceedings in Sir William's complicated litigation with the Ravenswood family were out of court and settled without the possibility of appeal. The Lord Keeper answered in the affirmative, but his interrogator was too well informed to be imposed upon. He pointed out to him, by unanswerable arguments, that some of the most important points which had been decided in his favour against the House of Ravenswood were liable under the Treaty of Union to be reviewed by the British House of Peers, a court of equity of which the Lord Keeper felt an instinctive dread. This course came instead of an appeal to the old Scottish Parliament, or, as it was technically termed, a protestation for remit in law. The Lord Keeper, after he had for some time disputed the legality of such a proceeding, was compelled at length to comfort himself with the improbability of the young master of Ravenswood's finding friends in Parliament capable of stirring in so weighty an affair. "'Do not comfort yourself with that false hope,' said his wily friend. "'It is possible that, in the next session of Parliament, young Ravenswood may find more friends and favour even than your lordship.' "'That would be a sight worth seeing,' said the keeper scornfully. "'And yet,' said his friend, "'such things have been seen ere now, and in our own time. "'There are many at the head of affairs even now "'that a few years ago were under hiding for their lives, "'and many a man now dines on plates of silver "'that was fain to eat his crowdy without a bicker, "'and many a high head has been brought full low among us "'in as short a space.' Scott, of Scott Sarvert's staggering state of Scott's statesman, of which curious memoir you showed me a manuscript, has been outstaggered in our time. The Lord Keeper answered with a deep sigh, that these mutations were no new sights in Scotland, and had been witnessed long before the time of this satirical author he had quoted. It was many a long year, he said, since Fordun had quoted as an ancient proverb Neque divis, neque fortis, sed nec sapiens scotus, predominante individia, dio durabit in terra. And be assured, my esteemed friend, was the answer, that even your long services to the state, or deep legal knowledge, will not save you, or render your estate stable, if the Marquis of A comes in with a party in the British Parliament. You know that the deceased Lord Ravenswood was his near ally, his lady being fifth in descent from the knight of Tillibardine, and I am well assured that he will take young Ravenswood by the hand, and be his very good lord and kinsman. Why should he not? The master is an active and stirring young fellow, able to help himself with tongue and hands, and it is such as he that finds friends among their kindred and not those unarmed and unable Mephibosheths that are sure to be a burden to every one that takes them up. And so, if these Ravenswood cases be called over the coals in the House of Peers, you will find that the Marquis will have a crow to pluck with you. That would be an evil requital, said the Lord Keeper, for my long services to the State, and the ancient respect in which I have held his Lordship's honourable family and person. "'Aye, but,' rejoined the agent of the Marquis, "'it is in vain to look back on past service and old respect, my lord. "'It will be present service and immediate proofs of regard, 
which in these slidery times will be expected by a man like the Marquis. The Lord Keeper now saw the full drift of his friend's argument, but he was too cautious to return any positive answer. He knew not, he said, the service which the Lord Marquis could expect from one of his limited abilities, that had not always stood at his command, still saving and reserving his duty to his king and country. Having thus said nothing, while he seemed to say everything, for the exception was calculated to cover whatever he might afterwards think proper to bring under it, Sir William Ashton changed the conversation, nor did he again permit the same topic to be introduced. His guest departed, without having brought the wily old statesman the length of committing himself, or of pledging himself to any future line of conduct. But with the certainty that he had alarmed his fears in a most sensible point, and laid a foundation for future and farther treaty. When he rendered an account of his negotiation to the Marquis, they both agreed that the keeper ought not to be permitted to relapse into security, and that he should be plied with new subjects of alarm, especially during the absence of his lady. They were well aware that her proud, vindictive, and predominating spirit would be likely to supply him with the courage in which he was deficient, that she was immovably attached to the party now in power, with whom she maintained a close correspondence and alliance, and that she hated, without fearing, the Ravenswood family, whose more ancient dignity threw discredit on the newly acquired grandeur of her husband, to such a degree that she would have perilled the interest of her own house to have the prospect of altogether crushing that of her enemy. But Lady Ashton was now absent. The business which had long detained her in Edinburgh had afterwards induced her to travel to London, not without the hope that she might contribute her share to disconcert the intrigues of the Marquis at court, for she stood high in favour with the celebrated Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, to whom, in point of character, she bore considerable resemblance. It was necessary to press her husband hard before her return, and as a preparatory step, the Marquis wrote to the Master of Ravenswood the letter which we rehearsed in a former chapter. It was cautiously worded, so as to leave it in the power of the writer hereafter to take as deep or as slight an interest in the fortunes of his kinsman as the progress of his own schemes might require. But however unwilling, as a statesman, the Marquis might be, to commit himself or assume the character of a patron, while he had nothing to give away, it must be said to his honour that he felt a strong inclination effectively to befriend the master of Ravenswood, as well as to use his name as a means of alarming the terrors of the Lord Keeper. As the messenger who carried this letter was to pass near the house of the Lord Keeper, he had it in direction that in the village adjoining to the park gate of the castle, his horse should lose a shoe, and that while it was replaced by the smith of the place, he should express the utmost regret for the necessary loss of time, and in the vehemence of his impatience give it to be understood that he was bearing a message from the Marquis of A to the Master of Ravenswood upon a matter of life and death. This news, with exaggerations, was speedily carried from various quarters to the ears of the Lord Keeper, and each reporter dwelt upon the extreme impatience of the courier 
and the surprising short time in which he had executed his journey. The anxious statesman heard in silence, but in private Lockhard received orders to watch the courier on his return, to waylay him in the village, to ply him with liquor if possible, and to use all means, fair or foul, to learn the contents of the letter of which he was the bearer. But as this plot had been foreseen, the messenger returned by a different and distant road, and thus escaped the snare that was laid for him. After he had been in vain expected for some time, Mr. Dingwall had orders to make a special inquiry among his clients of Wolf's Hope, whether such a domestic, belonging to the Marquis of A., had actually arrived at the neighbouring castle. This was easily ascertained, for Caleb had been in the village one morning by five o'clock to borrow twa chapins of ale and the kipper for the messenger's refreshment, and the poor fellow had been ill for twenty-four hours at Lucky Smotrash's, in consequence of dining upon salt salmon and sour drink, so that the existence of a correspondence betwixt the Marquis and his distressed kinsman, which Sir William Ashton had sometimes treated as a bugbear, was proved beyond the possibility of further doubt. The alarm of the Lord Keeper became very serious, since the claim of right, the power of appealing from the decisions of the civil court to the estates of Parliament, which had formerly been held incompetent, had in many instances been claimed, and in some allowed, and he had no small reason to apprehend the issue if the English House of Lords should be disposed to act upon an appeal from the Master of Ravenswood for remit in law. It would resolve into an equitable claim, and be decided perhaps upon the broad principles of justice, which were not quite so favourable to the Lord Keeper as those of strict law. Besides, judging, though most inaccurately, from courts which he had himself known in the unhappy times preceding the Scottish Union, the keeper might have too much right to think that in the house to which his lawsuits were to be transferred, the old maxim might prevail, which was too well recognised in Scotland in former times, show me the man, and I'll show you the law. The high and unbiased character of English judicial proceedings was then little known in Scotland, and the extension of them to that country was one of the most valuable advantages which it gained by the Union. But this was a blessing which the Lord Keeper, who had lived under another system, could not have the means of foreseeing. In the loss of his political consequence, he anticipated the loss of his lawsuit. Meanwhile, every report which reached him served to render the success of the Marquis's intrigues the more probable and the Lord Keeper began to think it indispensable that he should look round for some kind of protection against the coming storm. The timidity of his temper induced him to adopt measures of compromise and conciliation. The affair of the wild bull, properly managed, might, he thought, be made to facilitate a personal communication and reconciliation betwixt the master and himself. He would then learn, if possible, what his own ideas were of the extent of his rights, and the means of enforcing them, and perhaps matters might be brought to a compromise, where one party was wealthy and the other so very poor. A reconciliation with Ravenswood was likely to give him an opportunity to play his own game with the Marquis of A. And besides, he said to himself, it will be an act of generosity 
to raise up the heir of this distressed family, and if he is to be warmly and effectually befriended by the new government, who knows but my virtue may prove its own reward. Thus thought Sir William Ashton, covering with no unusual self-delusion his interested views with a hue of virtue, and having attained this point, his fancy strayed still farther. He began to bethink himself that if Ravenswood was to have a distinguished place of power and trust, and if such a union would soppet the heavier part of his unadjusted claims, there might be worse matches for his daughter Lucy. The master might be reponed against the attainder. Lord Ravenswood was an ancient title, and the alliance would, in some measure, legitimate his own possession of the greater part of the master's spoils, and make the surrender of the rest a subject of less bitter regret. With these mingled and multifarious plans occupying his head, the Lord Keeper availed himself of my Lord Bittlebrain's repeated invitation to his residence, and thus came within a very few miles of Wolf's Crag. Here he found the Lord of the Mansion absent, but was courteously received by the lady, who expected her husband's immediate return. She expressed her particular delight at seeing Miss Ashton, and appointed the hounds to be taken out for the Lord Keeper's special amusement. He readily entered into the proposal, as giving him an opportunity to reconnoitre Wolf's Crag, and perhaps to make some acquaintance with the owner, if he should be tempted from his desolate mansion by the chase. Lockhart had his orders to endeavour on his part to make some acquaintance with the inmates of the castle, and we have seen how he played his part. The accidental storm did more to further the Lord Keeper's plan of forming a personal acquaintance with young Ravenswood than his most sanguine expectations could have anticipated. His fear of the young nobleman's personal resentment had greatly decreased since he considered him as formidable from his legal claims and the means he might have of enforcing them. But although he thought, not unreasonably, that only desperate circumstances drove men on desperate measures. It was not without a secret terror which shook his heart within him that he first felt himself enclosed within the desolate tower of Wolf's Crag, a place so well fitted from solitude and strength to be a scene of violence and vengeance. The stern reception at first given to them by the master of Ravenswood, and the difficulty he felt in explaining to that injured nobleman what guests were under the shelter of his roof, did not soothe these alarms, so that when Sir William Ashton heard the door of the courtyard shut behind him with violence, the words of Alice rung in his ears, that he had drawn on matters too hardly with so fierce a race as those of Ravenswood, and that they would bide their time to be avenged. The subsequent frankness of the master's hospitality, as their acquaintance increased, abated the apprehensions these recollections were calculated to excite, and it did not escape Sir William Ashton that it was to Lucy's grace and beauty he owed the change in their host's behaviour. All these thoughts thronged upon him when he took possession of the secret chamber. The iron lamp, the unfurnished apartment, more resembling a prison than a place of ordinary repose, the hoarse and ceaseless sound of the waves rushing against the base of the rock on which the castle was founded, saddened and perplexed his mind. To his own successful machinations, the ruin of the family had been in a great measure owing, 
but his disposition was crafty and not cruel, so that actually to witness the desolation and distress he had himself occasioned was as painful to him as it would be to the humane mistress of a family to superintend in person the execution of the lambs and poultry which are killed by her own directions. At the same time, when he thought of the alternative of restoring to Ravenswood a large proportion of his spoils, or of adopting as an ally and member of his own family the heir of this impoverished house, he felt as the spider may be supposed to do, when his whole web, the intricacies of which had been planned with so much art, is destroyed by the chance sweep of a broom. And then, if he should commit himself too far in this matter, it gave rise to a perilous question, which many a good husband, when under temptation to act as a free agent, has asked himself, without being able to return a satisfactory answer. What will my wife, what will Lady Ashton say? On the whole, he came at length to the resolution in which minds of a weaker caste so often take refuge. He resolved to watch events, to take advantage of circumstances as they occurred, and regulate his conduct accordingly. In this spirit of temporising policy, he at length composed his mind to rest. End of chapter 15